Welcome to the Cato Institute, and I'd also like to, beyond our audience here at Cato, I'd like to welcome our viewers at C-SPAN and other people watching on the internet. Welcome to our event, Will President Trump Threaten Free Speech? Uh, my name is John Samples. I'm vice president and publisher here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I, our event today will be attended and will represent a conversation among the group you see in front of you, primarily the three uh, experts on the First Amendment. I want to begin today by introducing each of, one of, each of them briefly. I should say that these people are, have accomplished a great deal both in law and the First Amendment, so I'm going to give you a very concise uh, bio of each so that we can get to the conversation. Uh, our first guest is Fleming Rose, to my immediate left. Fleming is a Danish journalist and author who served as uh, foreign affairs and cultural editor at the Danish newspaper Jylland's Posten. He was principally responsible for the two, September 2005 publication of the cartoons that initiated the worldwide Mohammed controver cartoons controversy in early 2006. He's the author of several books, including, and perhaps I would like to think above all, The Tyranny of Silence, which was published by Cato in an English translation in 2014. He's been awarded many uh, literary prizes in Denmark, including a literary award from the leading uh, intellectual newspaper just last week. Frank Buckley, to my right, is foundation professor at, Scalia, at the Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He has dual Canadian-American citizenship and is author of The Way Back, Restoring the Promise of America, which appeared last year and which Frank was kind enough to come and we discussed at a policy luncheon here. Our final uh, com uh, conversant, uh, conversation partner, will be Bob Corn Revere, who's a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP, where he specializes in the First Amendment. He was named 2017 Lawyer of the Year in D.C. by Best Lawyers in America in the categories of First Amendment and Litigation First Amendment. He is co-author of a three-volume treatise entitled Modern Communications Law. So I thought to get our conversation started today on our event that I would, as verbatim as possible, uh, read some quotes over the last year or so by now President Trump uh, on First Amendment and free speech issues. In February of 2016, uh, then-candidate Trump said, quote, I'm going to open up our libel laws so when they write purposely and negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money. We're going to open up those libel laws so when the New York Times... Uh, writes a hit piece, which is a total disgrace, or when the Washington Post, which is there for other reasons, writes a hit piece, we can sue them and win money instead of having no chance of winning because they're totally protected. In October of 2016, he elaborated uh, some. Uh, he indicated the idea that he thinks the First Amendment provides too much protection, that he would like to change the laws to make it easier to sue media companies. Uh, he lamented that under current law, quote, our press is allowed to say whatever they want, unquote. 
Mr. Trump recommended at that time moving to a system like in England where someone who sues a media company has, quote, a good chance of winning, unquote. At, at the same interview, Mr. Trump said he is, quote, a tremendous believer of the freedom of the press. Nobody believes in it stronger than me, unquote. <laughs> November 2016, uh, after having been elected president of the United States, Mr. Trump tweeted, nobody should be allowed to burn the American flag. If they do, there must be consequences, perhaps loss of citizenship or year in jail, unquote. And finally, yesterday, Mr. Trump tweeted, if UC Berkeley does not allow free speech and practices violence on innocent people with a different point of view than all caps, no federal funds, question mark, unquote. Fleming, do you have a, could you get us started here by uh, <coughs> offering some thoughts on uh, Mr. Trump's statements and uh, your views? I'd be happy to, uh, and welcome. It's nice to be here, and thank you for the invitation, John. Um, I think I would say in general about uh, President Trump that, um, that he promotes uh, um, a culture of intolerance, and the um, the example you provided with uh, the flag burning and uh, the suggestion that uh, people might be stripped of their citizenship if they uh, entertain that kind of activity, I think indicates what I'm um, what I'm pointing to, and this is a traditional um, approach among populists in the US or in Europe when they, when they, so to say, insist on speaking on behalf of the people and they believe they have a right to determine who belongs to the people and who don't. And if you, if you do not agree, then you are not part of the community and you can be stripped of your uh, citizenship. So this, uh, I think this, this culture of intolerance and, and bullying uh, is one general um, uh, 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 trend. When it comes to um, to libel law, uh, I think Mr. Trump by now understands that uh, there's no federal libel law. There are only uh, uh, state law. I think that you can uh, use um, and or apply. Um, and 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 here I don't think that 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 Mr. Trump is maybe the main perpetrator, but he's contributing to a climate uh, that is changing the equation of the relationship between media, courts, and, uh, and public. Uh, since uh, the Sullivan versus the New York Times, 1964, it's been a common feature that it's up to the media to determine what is newsworthy. And it's very difficult to, um, to win a, uh, a case against the media if if uh, they have determined that something is uh, newsworthy. I think that is changing now, and and Trump is playing into that uh, climate. We had the uh, the Hulk versus Gorka case, I think, when uh, they uh, Gorka went bankrupt, and you can disagree on 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 the facts or uh, uh, or on or on what Gorka uh, did, but I think the, the conclusion is that, that, that no court 
anymore will provide the news media the final say when it comes to determine whether something is uh, newsworthy. And, and, and Trump, by labeling the media the opposition, disgusting people, dishonest people, is playing into the undermining of uh, trust in, uh, in, in the media. Right. Well, uh, I have to correct something John said. John said he had assembled a panel of experts on the First Amendment and libel <coughs> on. I'm none of that. I'm, I'm here only because I was a Trump supporter, so I'm, I'm the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> um, and in, indeed, my publisher was rather hoping there would be protests. That, that would be good for sales. Um, but what he doesn't know about me is, is I actually worked as a newspaper reporter. But I didn't do it in this country. I, I did it in the country I grew up in, 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 in Canada. Now, I completely get it, okay? There's just America, and there's Iran, and there's nothing in between, right? <laughs> so, you know, everywhere else in the world is a world of benighted despotism. But then, thinking of Fleming, I recall what Jean-Francois Ravel said. <coughs> you remember the quote? He said, the dark night of fascism is always about to descend on the United States, but somehow it lands in your Europe. True. And we don't do fascism. And as for the libel laws that Trump wanted, well, working as a newspaper reporter, as a, I, 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 uh, I work for a Thompson paper, which is a Tory chain. And this was in Prince Albert, which was the town of John Diefenbaker, the former Tory prime minister, and I was asked, my politics, and I said that I had been the president of a Tory club, and I was hired, and I thought the universe is unfolding as it should. And, and, but the first thing I did is I learned a bit about libel law, and it, it was fascinating to realize that I had some responsibilities to the truth. I mean, there was just sort of weird stuff. We're doing obits, for example. If you report that Norman P. Brown is dead, and it turns out Norman P. Brown is alive, and Norman O. Brown is the guy who died. You've just libeled the, the living guy. And, you know, so you had to worry about these things. Well, you know, again, I hate that, yes, of course, <coughs> it's, it's fascism in Iran and all that. Of course, it's not America. What else could it be? But, you know, the newspaper industry in Britain is pretty darn good. And, and some people here would have had the experience in the last couple of years of trying to get news about America from the Telegraph or the Daily Mail. As for Toronto, I mean, it's got, Toronto has, has four dailies. And they're all doing rather well. I mean, they're all suffering from the ravages of competition as to classified ads and people going to the internet and all that. And of course, the barbarian invasion of ill-educated millennial, millennials who can't read and all of that. But somehow, they're doing well, right? I mean, circulation of the Toronto Star is about 350,000. Globe and Mail is the same. National Post, 200,000. So, you know, so they're, they're doing rather well, and, and I haven't heard too many complaints about um, them suffering under this fascist libel law that you've been describing. Bob. Okay. Let's let Bob. Yeah. Well, first, I have to congratulate you on the title of this, this discussion. Um, will, will President Trump threaten freedom of speech? Although I, I think I would modify it a little bit and say, when will? Uh, President Trump threatened freedom of speech. Uh, and what time is it? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, his campaign was one threat to the press or to freedom of speech after another. And, uh, you know, but the thing that makes it unusual is that it really is nothing different from most administrations. 
The difference is that Trump is a bit like a four-year-old with Tourette's syndrome, and uh, he just constantly is speaking without a filter, and so you have these constant outbursts that uh, uh, probably express the inner thoughts of most politicians, um, but uh, um, he just says them out loud. What's interesting is that there have been more panels in more places about Trump and the First Amendment than any I can remember since I've been practicing law in Washington, and I've been practicing for over 30 years. Uh, there seems to be one every week assessing what the impact is going to be. And I get that with statements like we need to open up the libel laws and the press being the most dishonest people on the face of the earth. Um, but I think it's, it's necessary to take a look and see what distinguishes this administration from previous ones if you really want to assess the impact. I mean, after all, while um, President Obama didn't make the same kinds of inflammatory comments about the press that, that Trump does, uh, he do, did, in his administration, initiate more uh, leak investigations and prosecution for leaks than all previous administrations in history combined. Um, you also have, if you compare uh, President Trump to Hillary Clinton, uh, I don't think, think that she was any more transparent uh, than, than Trump would be, or friendly to the press, for that matter. Um, you know, both candidates this year campaigned on uh, a platform of appointing Supreme Court justices uh, that would undermine First Amendment freedoms. If you accept uh, Trump's statement about opening up the libel laws as some indication of who he wanted to appoint, then uh, that was uh, uh, one goal. Hillary Clinton campaigned on the idea of appointing someone who had overturned Citizens United. Um, and again, I, I can't remember a time in which candidates from both major parties campaigned hoping to uh, undermine existing protections for First Amendment. So when the question is raised, will Trump threaten the First Amendment, uh, the answer has to be compared to what? Uh, you know, I think both major parties, most politicians are hostile to the First Amendment. If they could, they would like to open up the libel laws uh, or find other ways to, to limit the press. And so the question really is what exact things that Trump might do uh, could undermine the First Amendment. I think first in terms of, um, you know, just practice with the press. I mean, we've already seen the opening salvos of that. Uh, threats to limit uh, press access to the White House. Um, uh, Steve Bannon saying it's time for the press to sit down and shut up. Uh, well, <laughs> no, uh, that's not going to happen. Um, and I think th those will have an effect, but it's hard to tell whether or not that will be more in favor of free speech or against, because I think news organizations will adapt. It may actually improve journalism if you have more shoe leather reporting and less just uh, relying on access to people in positions of power. Uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, other news organizations are already uh, investing more in their White House coverage. And so it may end up being a net positive because at least you know who your adversary is. Uh, with uh, the administration describing the press as an opposition party. Well, if that's the case, let's see a real opposition. Um, secondly, in terms of policy, who Trump might appoint to various key positions, uh, I think that could be a mix of things. Uh, Jeff Sessions is um, uh, confirmed as um, uh, attorney general. Uh, I don't think that it's going to lead to any more openness when it comes to leak prosecutions. Um, and it, during his confirmation hearings uh, was noncommittal about whether or not he would continue that trend. Um, 
there, are, there has been talk of whether or not the Justice Department would revive its National Enforcement uh, Obscenity Enforcement Unit. Uh, Trump, as a candidate, did take the pledge to um, um, crack down on, on porn, so, uh, which seems odd for someone who's been in a couple of softcore videos himself. But nonetheless, uh, you know, there is the chance that policy may move in that direction. I know people who practice First Amendment law in that area are quite concerned about what might happen under a Trump administration and a uh, Sessions Justice Department, but uh, time will tell on that. Um, but other agencies, like the Federal Communications Commission, are, are likely to move in a more uh, First Amendment-friendly direction. Ajit Pai, the uh, new chairman, was awarded the Media Institute's First Amendment Award last fall. He had um, really nice things to say about uh, protecting the First Amendment, but then you know, things can happen once you're chairman and subject to the political um, pressures of that, that role. And we've seen chairmen who talk a good First Amendment game in the past, uh, when push comes to shove, uh, uh, be more, more restrictive. But I'm, I'm very hopeful about that. So I think we'll just proceed by people wanting the floor and then taking it in a normal conversation, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. If I'll do some time, men, or play stuff if we have to. But Fleming, you <laughs> indicated... Yeah, I, I, I just want to make a comment on what Frank said about uh, UK libel laws. Um, I agree that the British, the British press is not bad, and uh, they are doing quite well um, within the framework of the current libel laws. But in fact, they have been changed a little bit. And um, um, 10, 15 years ago, um, uh, oligarchs, Russian oligarchs and Saudi Arabian um, uh, billionaires, uh, they, they went to courts in the UK to, um, to, to uh, suppress information that they didn't like. Uh, there is a US citizen, Rachel Ehrenfeld, who published a book on financing terror um, and uh, she named a Saudi Arabian billionaire in her book, and he sued her in a UK court. And, um, and uh, she was, in fact, uh, uh, convicted. Mm. I think free books were sold on UKAmazon.com, uh, uh, and she couldn't go to the UK. And, I've, and, and um, I think Congress passed uh, the Rachel the Law to make it uh, clear that she couldn't be um, uh, prosecuted in, uh, in, in, in the US. So, so these libel laws are in fact being used to, um, to uh, suppress uh, um, uh, critical information. Um. Suppress lies or suppress truth? I don't know the case, so I can't comment. But I do get into these conversations <coughs> with people in this country about Freedom, which is the subject of Cato, of course. And it often comes down to, well, I don't care. I mean, we have the First Amendment, and, and you don't. At least you don't have it the same way. And, and therefore, you're, again, you're Iran. And they, that seems to me to be a piece of kind of, may I say, First Amendment fetishism. <laughs> um, it is not the case that you can easily compare freedom in one country versus another country. But if you did, which is something Cato does, right? Cato has this table of economic freedom in different countries. And if you liked freedom, then were you given the chance to swap all American laws and the Constitution and the First Amendment for the Canadian parliamentary system, 
and its libel laws and Medicare, you would be intelligent to swap. Because if you did that, you would find yourself living in a freer country, according to Cato. I, I rest my case. And indeed, of the countries ahead of the United States on that list, all of them are, well, they're mostly countries with British common law. That is to say, British or Canadian-style uh, libel laws. Canada, by the way, apparently has the most pro-plaintive libel laws anywhere. Although, you know, you know what's funny about this sort of thing is you can't... There's a tendency to look at laws in isolation. Canada has extremely plaintive-friendly substantive libel laws, but very defendant-friendly procedural laws. And the United States is just the opposite. I mean, American procedural law fairly beckons the plaintiff to come to court, but then you have strict First Amendment barriers when it comes to substantive law. So that, at last, extremes come to touch in the end, possibly, right, uh, to quote Ben Johnson. So the differences may not, in practice, be all that good, but, but in general, they matter. You know, I, I've, I've discovered this myself. I, you know, I'm not practicing in the area, but I, I assembled this group called Scholars and Writers for America. It was a pro-Trump group, and I did it in part because I thought it'd be amusing to find people who call themselves scholars supporting Trump. And we've got, you know, got 150-odd people, right? And then what happened was the press went through the list trying to find dirt on the people, and they found one person. A person who, who 30 years back, had been smeared as a Nazi sympathizer. And I mean, there was nothing to the story. If you had researched it for just a moment, you would have realized that the charges were completely spurious. Everybody apologized for afterwards. Abe Foxman wrote a letter to her, right? I mean, completely cleared of all of this. But nevertheless, the New Republic carried a story smearing her as this, you know, this, this, this Nazi agent on the list. And one thought, wouldn't this be a good opportunity to put the New Republic out of business? I'm not sure if it is in business, but, right. Uh, and then I discovered that by putting her name on the list, she was now a public figure in New York Times, Sullivan applied. And, of course, there is no such thing as New York, New York Times and Sullivan in Canada. The Canadian Supreme Court expressly decided not to follow that decision. Right. And um, I regretted that barrier. I mean, as it was, we would have had to prove, you know, recklessness at least. And, uh, you know, if one did a, a, a momentary search on the Internet, you would have discovered that there was this story and then there were these ten counter-stories and... It would have been just too complicated to do. And so I regret that. Yes, there's, there are times when, I'll just mention this one last thing. I, I don't know about the case you mentioned. There are other cases where it's important to vindicate truth. And as you've mentioned, uh, British courts, you'll recall the David Irvine case. And huh? David Irvine is a yeah. Holocaust denier um, who I guess sued a lady. It was in Austria. Lipset. It was in Austria. Austrian? Yeah. Okay. It was in Austria that he was convicted to a prison term. Oh, well, yes, but I'm talking about the libel case in Britain. Yeah. Right. So uh, a, a British judge said, I'm going into this. I, 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 you know, I, I sort of know what <coughs> happened to the, uh, in the Holocaust, but I'm, I'll approach it with a fair and open mind. And I'm just, having read all the material, I conclude that David Irving is a complete rogue and uh, he's going to have to pay two million pounds. So as I say... Truth becomes an important thing to vindicate in all of this. And that which gives 
newspaper writers a greater incentive to ferret out truth is not always a bad thing. Let me uh, jump in here the, in the sense that, and maybe broaden this out a little bit. Uh, in arguing about campaign finance in particular, but about First Amendment free speech issues for a long time, one thing I've noticed is people generally believe that uh, lies should not be permitted to be spoken. Uh, the only problem is that, generally speaking, uh, everybody believes what the other side is saying, we're in a bifurcated world here, is lies. So what you've actually set up is a, now I understand that libel is a different thing, and, but it's the general problem <coughs> here, is that uh, everyone believes, there's no room and flexibility, that is, for saying, well, maybe it's not, you know, somebody could see it differently, that kind of thing. No. People, even people are supposed to be in favor of the First Amendment uh, on campaign finance issues, I've found really don't want people running for office to say things that they think are lies. So once you, in a sense, and we're now in the fake news era and, and all of this stuff, I would say that the culture out there, in a sense, is people actually don't have that kind of leeway, that kind of flexibility, or there's a danger they don't. And to, to think that uh, without that flexibility, you've really created some justifications for uh, First Amendment or free speech violations or limiting free speech. Right. Well, that <clears throat> That's why having government be the arbiter of truth is such a bad idea. And that's true whether or not you're, you're discussing it as a matter of government regulation of newspapers or anything else, or if you're talking about private litigation, as in the case of, of libel, uh, as uh, trying to set that bar. And it's why New York Times versus Sullivan developed the way that it did with a strong presumption that uh, um, uh, it is up to the plaintiff to uh, demonstrate that the, the statement is false and uh, ringed about with other constitutional protections. Um, I, I'm fascinated to hear about Canada, though. I think it's a very nice country. I, I like their syrup. Uh, and uh, uh, they, they do have different, different libel laws. Um, but um, I, I think it would be a, an extraordinarily bad thing to, uh, to try and import here. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wasn't so worried about candidate Trump talking about opening up the libel laws. Well, two reasons for it. One is that he didn't have the slightest idea what he was talking about. And second, I don't think he was going to be able to find uh, judicial appointees uh, who would, in his term, open up the libel laws. And in fact, if you look at the record of his nominee, Neil Gorsuch, uh, you have a, a, a rather strong First Amendment record, including in media and defamation cases. Uh, and so I'm not so worried about um, President Trump fulfilling the promises of, of candidate Trump in that regard. But in terms of the search for truth, and, and I, I speak as a former journalist myself, and so I, I, I know um, a bit about the, the daily rigors of trying to find a story and to make sure that it's accurate. Um, we saw in a case just a few years ago what the consequences are of when the government does try and enforce standards of truth. Um, and that was uh, Alvarez versus the United States. It was a case involving the federal law, the Stolen Valor Act, and it could um, uh, punish people criminally for lying about having won military honors. Uh, what the court ultimately determined was that it really is a bad idea to have the government enforce standards of truth by law and that it is much better handled through the marketplace of ideas, through um, other people pointing out when someone has been uh, untruthful about uh, their military accomplishments. 
Uh, and I think that really does maintain the constitutional balance. Um, those similar laws have been attempted uh, in trying to maintain truth by political candidates, if you can imagine that. Uh, it seems like you would have to have night courts uh, operating 24 hours a day if you're really going to enforce standards of truth by candidates. Um, and frankly, I think the current inhabitant of the Oval Office would have to worry about it a great deal as well if you're going to have standards of truth. But we learned the hard lesson with the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were all about trying to enforce standards of truth by newspapers, that uh, it really is incompatible with our constitutional system. I think what we've heard right now is Obama's rhetorical trick of identifying an extreme position and then trying to position himself right in the middle. Uh, let, me, let me assure you, John, there is no ministry of truth in England or in Canada. And if you listen to parliamentary debates in either country, you would realize that there's a pretty big latitude for the ordinary slanging that goes on. Of course, they have parliamentary privilege, but, you know... Uh, it, it is simply not the case that if you are in a free society that you're going to start stomping on people, you know, plain politics, right? And that's the point, really, isn't it? I mean, again, if you're trying to judge liberty, I mean, it depends so much more on the attitudes that everyone understands in society of that which is permitted and that which isn't. And if you are in a liberal society, which you know, most Western countries are, you understand that instinctively without having to be informed by a, a you know, First Amendment expert. I mean, you, you simply know this in your bones. And you know that when you go into these other countries, you're in a free country. And you know this because of the people in the country and not the politicians in the country and, and not the courts in the country. So... Um, but, you know, I, I guess I am somewhat sympathetic to the argument that maybe we should just blow up all libel law. I, you know, I teach contracts law. And, but, you know, you know, and I like it because it's about private ordering, but I'd feel really uncomfortable trying to teach securities regulation, which I don't believe in, right? I mean, I, I would be like an atheist trying to teach a course in sacred theology or you know, antitrust law or American tort law all things which I'm not convinced add to the sum of human happiness in any great way. And libel law in particular, there's so many ways out around, I mean, first of all, there's all the new media, which you're not going to go after, right, of course, because they're judgment-proof. Uh, and, and in the end, does it matter what you know, a rag like the New Republic might have to say in the end? Perhaps publish and be damned is the best thing you can do. And I say that not only because I sympathize with the Duke of Wellington, and, but also because I, I don't exactly have the greatest of respect for the American judicial system. When I think of a case like the Michael Mann lawsuit for libel against National Review, I mean, that was supposed to be shut down by the SLAP Act. You know what, you know what that is? It's, it's an effort to basically import Canadian law, right? Uh, SLAP is an acronym, by the way. It means so lawyers are prosperous. You know, and it just goes on and on and on and on. You know, jarndice and jarndice. Um, does, might it not be better just to get rid of the whole damn thing? I'm halfway persuaded that in as much as I do think that libel laws work in Canada, it may be, maybe they're, they're not suited for America. And if you think you can just export laws like that, then you make Madison's mistake in 
quoting the celebrated Montesquieu about the celebration of power, the separation of powers. And, and, and see, see what, Montes what Madison didn't understand is that before Montesquieu was a political theorist, he was a sociologist who knew that for each country there's an appropriate set of laws. And the appropriate set of laws for America might not be those of another country. But that, if you blew up libel law, that would mean President Trump would have no recourse except his Twitter account, right? Or <laughs> primarily his Twitter and account. And I'll, I'll mention that, <coughs> though, though I, I was a, a Trump supporter, an advisor on the campaign, and, and though I read the Post pretty regularly, I'm not aware of anything that was said by the Post or the New York Times that was libelous as to Trump. But, but, but do you believe that the, sh that, that, that the truth should be protected by the First Amendment? There are circumstances in where, as in the David Irvine case, where I applaud the result. But, you know, in, 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 in general, uh, well, I guess a, a certain amount of skepticism does make sense. You know, you know the story about Evelyn Waugh, he used to read the newspaper each day looking for mentions of himself for people to sue, you know. You know, he'd say, judge and jury must decide. So, you know, there, there, are, there are kind of libel trolls that way. But, you know, mostly the system works pretty well. You don't, you don't have people going around looking to sue other people for libel unless you're Michael Mann. Or Donald Trump. I mean, he has a long record of, of suing people and losing, uh, but uh, doing so for strategic purposes, doing so to bankrupt the journalist or to punish someone. Um, and it's... it's you know, becoming an increasing tactic uh, simply to use it even though there's no expectation of winning. Mm -hmm. no. And, it, and it's, it's being, you know, this threat is being increased because the media are not as well funded as they used to be. So, so the economic weapon, as happened in the Gorka case with a 140 million, I guess, uh, pledge, um, might mean that the media would back down if, uh, if they if they sense that uh, that would not be able financially to, um, to, to make it. And this is what is going on in less free societies where the powers that be, they, they go after newspapers, where you have oligarchs or wealthy politicians to shut down the media with, this, uh, with libel suits and uh, an economic weapon. So does the, your mention of the media, uh, reminds me of your initial comment, which is uh, about the declining trust in the media. And actually, uh, I read a New York Times article in the last week or so uh, that pointed to uh, public opinion data from the Pew Group about the declining trust in the media. And it has been. I mean, over the last 30 years, it's, you know, they, they've asked the same question. And, one, and this, I think, is uh, there's people, some people that argue that this is connected to the idea of uh, the, that President Obama's administration could do these many leak investigations, which was really uh, had in, thought to have intimidation effects on uh, the press. They could do it because nobody trusted the media and they're not particularly well liked. Uh, is, does that matter? Should we care about whether most, the most uh, corporate or the most organized, institutionalized part of the First Amendment um, doesn't have much public support. Absolutely, I think that's uh, very important. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't criticize the media. Uh, you should, 
uh, and you shouldn't point to inaccuracies and uh, and failures, but but the media is an institution that is important uh, to democracy, and and trust in these public institutions, be they the presidency, the courts, uh, the media, uh, is 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 important um, to. Uh, um, uh, living democracy. So, so I, I, I do believe that uh, that, and and I, I do believe Trump uh, when he when he when he calls the media the opposition uh, is is contributing to 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 the undermining of uh, of trust because it it is based on the notion that uh, of course the media has its own biases, but you treat the opposition in a different way than you uh, treat the media. Um, so, so I think that's that's quite unfortunate, and I and I and I think that um, that um, uh, the a, a more fundamental thing when it comes to um, to Trump and free speech and the right to free inquiry and so on and so forth is the following. Um, I think it was Daniel Patrick Monaghan who many years ago said that uh, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but nobody is entitled to his own facts. And that's not true anymore. Um, now, now we have alternative facts, um, and, uh, and, and this goes to the heart of uh, what Jonathan Rausch has called the liberal science model. The, f- uh, the, the, the fact that, uh, that the Enlightenment um, uh, foundation of our society is based on the notion of the right to free inquiry and that truth be, will be served uh, if we have the right to criticize and there is no final say and there is no personal authority, that the truth in the final end will prevail. And this is also John Stuart Mill's argument for free speech that the more speech, uh, the more criticism, the more back and forth, uh, the better uh, a result we will achieve in the end. And, and, and is that still the case uh, in, in a situation where, where we cannot agree about what is a fact and what is not uh, a fact? I mean, therein lies the problem. And, and John, the question you asked is a very, very broad one. I don't know if you can point to any one thing and say that is the problem. In a world of alternative facts, um, who do you turn to? I mean, it used to be the media model is that you had expert gatekeepers, the large established organizations, whether it's the the broadcast networks or the major newspapers, that serve that gatekeeper function, sometimes well, sometimes badly. Um, But as media has become more democratized through the internet, you've had a number of different things going on. One is the economic base for traditional media has been eroded, so that they do have less uh, strength to uh, stand up to pressures from government or from other institutions. Uh, you have less trust because media uh, sources have become more diffused, uh, and then it becomes more incumbent upon the individual to be able to evaluate information and to make critical judgments about what is likely to be true, what is not. You can't just rely, you can't just trust on an authoritative source to tell you, um, as existed in the previous media model, and so it becomes uh, more difficult and more pressure is, is placed on the individual. What we really badly need is more education and critical thinking skills uh, in media literacy 
so that when someone comes forward with their alternative facts, uh, you're able to, the, you know, the general public is able to evaluate that and um, make, make better judgments. But it's part of the good news and bad news about the internet. It, it has democratized information so that every individual has access to a global platform, but it also has made it so that the average reader, the average viewer, uh, has no real anchor for determining what is real and what isn't. Well, let me step in right now because I think we all know what the story is here. If the media was dying, it's, it's a self-inflicted wound. We all know that. I mean, I've been, you know, reading the Washington Post app over the last year has been absolutely hilarious. The anti-Trump story, sure, yeah, two of them in the front page, no problem. But the metro section too, eh? And then, of course, the style section and the book review section and the sports section. I never once did see an anti-Trump story in the weather reports, though. So I'll give them that. We all know that. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the future, there are going to be essays and books written about what happened to the media in the last year. And yeah. what happened to the media is the media gave, flipped the bird to about half its readers, right? And those readers who didn't like being called deplorables and who didn't think that they were simply clinging to their guns and their religion, uh, they went to other news sources, and they're out there. And, and so yeah, we're getting that kind of competition. The, I mean, the suggestion that there is one simple, holy purveyor of truth, which happens to be the New York Times or the Washington Post, is, I think, I think it's hopelessly naive. Well, and I don't no think it's going to be that. cured by some judicial, some school of journalism courses on whatever. <laughs> I think it'll be cured, if anything, by the market. I think at some point, newspapers, and maybe the, the Times says it's trying to do this, I think newspapers will wake up and say, look, you know, there are other people out there, and, and they have some, they're not all bigots. And, you know, they kind of resented when they were called bigots. Mm -hmm. And if you call them that, they'll tell you to take a hike. Right? And they'll turn you off, as they should. Yeah. Somehow the, the, the strategy of insulting half of Americans didn't work terribly well when it came to selling newspapers, did it? Maybe at some point they'll figure that out. Well, I think the difficulty here is yeah. viewing this as a political game where you're either on one side or the other. Frankly, I found both candidates deplorable. Uh, you know, and, that, and that's part of the problem. I mean, you have a system that's geared toward a duopoly presenting, you know, really a very limited range of political views. Um, and it's really not a question of whether or not the media is for one candidate or against one candidate. It's really a question of having um, some way of getting information out there uh, that people can trust uh, and that uh, is vetted and that allows people to critically evaluate the information presented by whatever party wants to exert some kind of rule. But in be, but, yeah. But, but yeah, because we, what you're, what you're just... talking about is, is a, 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 a opinions, and I agree with you that, uh, that the media has contributed to uh, the undermining of its own trust. But, but what do you think about you know, the Trump administration talking about alternative facts and, and that, that we cannot agree anymore about what is a fact and what is an opinion? Uh, I, think, uh, I think it was bloody stupid. Yeah. But, 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 you know but it's more than stupid, I think. Here. We've been talking about the problem of a ministry of truth, right? And now we're saying, yeah, but we'll have that only it'll be the newspapers that'll do it. You see mm -hmm. a problem there? No, there's no, no, no. no. There's no, no ministry that. of truth. 
it's not the government and it's not the New York Times. It's, Absolutely. it's a lot of alternative sources. Yes, and that's why I said, you know, the, 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 the liberal uh, science model, as Rausch calls it, is based on these two principles, no final say and no personal authority. Exactly. It's, uh, you, you have to put forward your <laughs> arguments and they have to be checked in the public and knowledge production and production of facts is a social process and it's breaking down when we, when we, when, 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 when the, when, when this process of back and forth and criticizing and challenging uh, cannot lead to um, to a result where we agree on what is the truth right now, it doesn't mean that it's the final truth, but at 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 some at some point in in the process. And I believe that is really a it's it's a deeper problem. And and if, it's not only about about uh, Trump. It's uh, it's it's a general cultural. Uh, a process that is that is going on, I let, think. Let me push this off in a slightly different direction. Is the problem actually anonymity, right? And not only just the anonymity of violence, like we saw in Berkeley, I mean, that's pretty typical, but the fact that so much of the speech that has taken the <coughs> place of the older establishment media, which I, I agree with, Frank, I mean, I think... It, the only question is sometimes people that don't uh, actually have much uh, use for the First Amendment, like a lot of the establishment media, um, you may have to support them anyway because <clears throat> if that's what's the right thing. But I would say uh, the, the whole question of anonymous speech online is in large part the, the replacement for that, and it's also part of the question of uh, facts and so on. Well, it's because like the old joke, you know, that uh, you on the internet nobody can tell if you're a dog. No, no it's outlets no. like Breitbart. No, the anonymity no. question is the one I raised, right? The anonymity is that you can, uh, and this is sort of goes back to the libel question because that's part of the issue, right? Is that um, people can attack others or just, or they can suggest, you know, a guy showed up at a. a with a gun at a pizzeria near my house uh, with no facts, really, to support him. The, our argument always is, and I'm just throwing this out there, I'm not giving up this argument, is more speech. That's Justice Roberts' argument. That's what Justice Roberts said in uh, Citizens United. The answer is always, or Justice Kennedy said, more, more speech. Um, is it working with the replacements for these? Breitbart is not anonymous speech. No. Yeah. I wasn't able to tell, though, from, from your question whether or not you were in favor of anonymous speech or not in favor of it. Uh, you know, I, I think we have a strong constitutional tradition that goes back to the founding uh, that is predicated on anonymous speech. Uh, that, uh, it, at the time of, of the founding, a lot of the dissent would not have happened. Uh, had the speakers been required to identify themselves. And because of that, the Supreme Court, in decision after decision, has recognized that the First Amendment does protect anonymous speech. Now, that being said, anonymous speech online can lead to problems. Um, you know, as I was saying earlier, there's the old joke on the Internet, nobody can tell if you're a dog. They can tell right away if you're an ass, though. And, um, and so there's a lot of that going on and a lot of trolling. People feel like... Um, you know, because they are behind the veil of, of anonymity, they'll just say anything. And that's just something we have to put up with yeah. because the answer in the end is more speech. Yeah. Publius was anonymous after all. 
Yeah. Um, about getting you guys stirred up. That's I, I, I'm in favor of it too. Oh, uh, and I'm, yeah, I know. By the way, we should we should do one one quick plug because Fleming was mentioning Jonathan Rauch, and for yes. those of you who haven't read it, his terrific book is Kindly Inquisitors, Thank where you. he talks about these principles that it is an ongoing debate. No one has special privilege, and the debate never ends. Yeah. Um, is the answer more speech? And you refer to uh, to the incident with uh, the pizzeria, and it it plays into the debate about fake news. Um, and 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 that is also a challenge right now. Um, if I may just um, talk a little bit about what is going on in Europe, where I come from, on uh, on on this front, in in Europe there is an increasing pressure for criminalizing fake news. And uh, it means, in fact, a ministry of truth, uh, that uh, the government is to decide uh, what is true and what is false, which I think is very unfortunate. And, and right now you have very influential uh, German politicians, both in the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, and the Christian Democratic Party, that want to equalize fake news to hate speech. Uh, up to five years in prison. Uh, and uh, if uh, Facebook uh, uh, disseminate uh, uh, fake news and does not take it down, down within 24 hours, they can be fined uh, 25,000 euro. Uh, 500,000 euro, is a, which, which is uh, $500,000. Uh, the antitrust minister of Italy has come forward with a proposal. Um, he wants to coordinate from Brussels uh, the uh, the fight against fake news. And 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 the interesting thing is that the majority of these politicians they identify the populist parties in uh, Europe as a disseminator of uh, fake news. So it's it's in fact a, a quite uh, transparent way to go after your political opponents. Um, I would not recommend that the uh, United States, uh, and I'm, I'm quite sure that you will not uh, go that way. But but uh, and it and and but it 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 leads to a situation where you will have government-sanctioned news, and that's what you had in the Soviet Union. And in fact, in the Soviet Union, you had a law criminalizing dissemination of uh, deliberate false information undermining the Soviet political and social system. And that is the article in the criminal code that was used to put dissidents in labor camps. Uh, I, I, I'm quite sure that, uh, that the European politicians are not aware of this uh, uh, nasty association, but nevertheless, I think it should uh, make them think once or twice before uh, heading down that road. Well, now you get your chance to uh, get uh, better answers out of our, our people here. Uh, let me um, say first, we're going to the question and answers section. Please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone also. So this is, this is sometimes an issue. Uh, and the reason for that is everyone in the room can hear you and also people that are online. So please wait for that. A person will bring a microphone. And here, just on issues that we've just been discussing, we ask usually that people announce their name and affiliation. If you don't want to, though, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, you're going to be on TV anyway. But um, uh, Please, above all, make your uh, comments in the form of a question. 
Let's begin with, and I'm going to be very rude, by the way. I just pointed people, since I don't know your name. The lady right in the middle. Uh, yes, she still has her hand up. And we'll try to get to everyone. Hi, my name is Rachel Oswald. I'm a journalist and one who is um, very concerned about press freedom issues. My question has to deal with um, a dangerous speech, incitement to violence, um, what people usually say, don't cry fire in a movie theater. I'm wondering how that old adage applies to the digital age um, or just the, the state of um, heightened, the heightened spread of news um, and also heightened polarity. I'm thinking, for example, somebody wants to burn a Quran. We know historically that when someone in some corner of the world burns a Quran, there will be violence and possibly death in other corners of the world. And um, the people who disseminated the fake news story about the pizza parlor sex ring, you know, um, when, when you know that certain kinds of information, that it is so um, incendiary that some, some people will be moved to violence for it. I'd, how do we treat that kind of speech? Do you want to get that? I'll start with uh, um, when Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote that famous line about shouting fire in a crowded theater. He said that uh, no one would argue that it is protected to shout, shout fire in a crowded theater falsely and cause a panic. Uh, when he wrote those words in 1919, uh, it was a time when people were being sent to prison for advocating against American involvement in World War I. And uh, the um, United States was using the Espionage Act even to punish uh, dissident clergy members uh, who would speak up or presidential candidates. Um, fortunately, American law evolved from that point, and Oliver Wendell Holmes evolved after that point uh, to be more speech protective. And so that the standard that was established showed that there had to be both an intent to cause an immediate uh, lawless action and the likelihood that you would have that imminent lawless action uh, take place. And so the First Amendment standard that developed was very protective. But now we face the situation, the second part of your question, where you ask about whether or not we have to anticipate that words online will be so inflammatory that we need to take some kind of action. And the danger is that if we anticipate that in a global medium, somewhere around the world is going to get cranky about it, and therefore we better start suppressing what people would say online, then you have lost freedom of expression. And so we're simply going to have to be able to deal with the fact that people are going to get upset at what they see or hear, whether it's burning a Koran or anything else, and that that's not going to be an excuse for limiting freedom of expression in the United States. I mean, we see this sort of, it's almost like great escalation when we talk about threat assessments. People talk about having safe spaces and wanting to be protected from, you know, uh, any kind of upset. And it, what it's led to is the presumption by some that there is some kind of right never to be offended. And if that becomes the standard, then the First Amendment is history. Yeah, uh, can I just, sure. I mean, uh, I was involved in the Khartoum crisis and some of the issues that you, uh, that you raised, in fact, also informed uh, the debate back then. Uh, and there were people who said you should have known uh, and therefore you shouldn't have uh, published those cartoons. Um, I think a couple of points. The interesting thing here is that all the violence um, during the Khartoum crisis back in 2006 uh, transpired in countries where individual citizens did not enjoy freedom of expression, where they did not have the right to publish cartoons. 
while there was no violence in, uh, in, in, in democracies where this was not a criminal offense. That is, freedom of expression and tolerance had helped to work out a way of managing disagreements and uh, offense in a way uh, so that it, it did not lead to violence. And I think that is a very strong argument uh, for not criminalizing these kind of, uh, of things. The more fundamental argument is that um, if, 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 you, if, you, if, you, if you understand human beings as autonomous individuals able to make, their up, to make up their own mind about what other people say, they, there is no automatic uh, relationship between speech and violence. Uh, we, as individuals and as human beings, we have a mind and a reason and a capability to choose how we are going to react to what other, other people say. And, and, and if we ignore that human capability, we are un undermining human dignity and, and reducing human beings to, uh, to animals or to immature children that are not able to think for, them, for themselves. Little one, I think there's a clear distinction to be made between inciting violence by, for example, urging people to burn down something or other, which yeah. there seems to be a bit of that these days, and speech which merely offends people. And in that, I, I agree entirely with you. Would anyone be terribly worked up if the, if the book in question were the Christian or Jewish Bible, as opposed to the Quran? No. Would we want to make that invidious distinction? No. <clears throat> no, the question is, are you asking someone else to become violent? Mm -hmm. Not, are you offering a fig leaf by which that person thinks he has the privilege to become violent. I, 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 the same I, argument was made, though, uh, about um, flag burning, right? That one of the reasons why the government felt that it could prohibit that as a form of protest was because they said th there would be these violent reactions. Yeah, uh, and, and ultimately, the, the Supreme mm -hmm. Court saw through that, including Justice Scalia saw through that and held that the First Amendment protects that activity, even if it is something that is may well cause a violent reaction. And, and also, I think, I think uh, there is a responsibility of the media here because Terry Jones, the pastor you talked about in Florida, he, he had a segregation of 50 people and he intended to burn the Quran in his backyard. It only became a worldwide event because uh, uh, world media showed up and provided him, him a microphone. And I think it was very unfortunate that, um, that Secretary Gates, in fact, called him up uh, and asked him not to go ahead, and uh, President Obama uh, spoke about it on, uh, on, on, on a talk show. In fact, being in charge of the executive, Obama called on a private citizen to seize his uh, constitutional rights without being aware, in fact, uh, I mean, it may be prudent to ask uh, the pastor not to do it, but, but, but uh, as president, you have to protect uh, uh, U.S. citizens' right to exercise their civil li liberties, and among them, uh, the right to freedom of expression. Uh, and I think that is real a slippery slope, and it's not only happening here, it's also happening in Europe uh, when, when individuals uh, do, th do things that may uh, create uh, an angry response somewhere else in the world. They, they call on them not to, to go ahead uh, without being very clear about what they really are doing. They are asking citizens to seize their fundamental rights and liberties in a democracy. I, I don't think they should do that. Gentlemen, four up and two in, this way, from the bottom, right there. 
My name is Stephen Shore. My question is, does the president know that we're having this discussion? <laughs> Watch your tweets. <laughs> well, a good friend of mine works in the NSC, and I probably does. He could be watching. Yeah. Uh, gentleman in front here. Now, there's more than one. The man in the middle. Uh, using the random process. <laughs> Herb Rose. Um, I come from a background where my father wrote, uh, read one newspaper on the way to work when he took uh, the subway. Uh, he read another newspaper on the way home from work. Uh, in my high school, you could get a subscription to the New York Times, uh, I think it was something like 25 or 30 cents a week uh, for the daily newspaper. So uh, I come from a background and a time when people read newspapers and were concerned with what the media said. And this was also the early days of television. Um, today, uh, you say that in the post-truth era, it's up to the individual to uh, seek out the truth, uh, to uh, determine what sources are reliable. Um, I think besides the people in this room, uh, that represents uh, a minority of uh, people who form opinions. Uh, how do you encourage and increase uh, the number of people to seek out reliable sources of news and information? I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. I mean, I, I think it starts with education. It, it starts with uh, a set of common understandings that uh, the individual is autonomous and, uh, and able to make their own, their own decisions and have the obligation to make their own decisions. I think we should educate our children that they should not only seek out opposing opinions, um, but um, participate in, in discussions and debates. It all comes back to critical thinking. And if other people have better ideas for how to promote that, I'd, I'd love to hear them. Well, well you can yeah. think of one thing. You can think of how American kids do on PSAT tests compared to other countries. And, and the fact is we do terribly. And our K-12 schools fail students miserably. So, so, and then there are all the distractions of television and the like. Mm -hmm. You could start with better schools. Uh, I think that there is a more fundamental issue here, and uh, that is the way social media works, and uh, the way social media reinforces ignorance, I would say. Um, uh, it's not only about uh, seeking reliable information, it's about exposing yourself to points of views that you don't like. Uh, because social media make <coughs> The algorithm of social media is, is created in a way that it will, it will seek uh, confirmation bias. If you like and share uh, you know, the, things, the things that fluctuates with your own point of view. And that's why during the campaign, a lot of people never came across a Trump supporter on social media and they couldn't believe that he could win. <laughs> because they, they didn't know that there were anyone out there. Uh, they, they, and so I, I think a way to, to change this trend is that we more consciously um, like and share uh, stories and information that is contrary to uh, our own confirmation bias. Um, uh, 
knowledge, knowledge and facts are social phenomena. Uh, they only become facts and knowledge if, if, if they are part of an interaction between human beings. And it means that uh, everything Trump says is only becoming fact, knowledge, uh, if it's being accept accepted by, uh, by his community of interpretation. So, so I would say something Let positive. me just say one little thing. Yeah. There, there seems to be an assumption that most of our problems would be cured if people spent more time thinking about politics and reading about politics and listening about politics. And sometimes, don't you think you've had it up to here? Well, yeah, I do. And, and, but I'm talking about not just politics. About I'm politics talking about too. life. I'm yes. talking about, you know, arguing over who the best band is that you want to listen to and everything else that goes with it, the best restaurant. Politics is part of life, but it's not the most important part of life. Uh, and what's, I mean, talking about having it up to here, I, I was laid up with a broken leg through most of the fall, so I saw more talk television, listen to more political commentary than I ever do, ever would willingly. Talk about a captive audience, that was me. And by the time election day rolled around, I couldn't <laughs> listen to another minute of it. Uh, but when people talk about free expression, there is an assumption that it only has to do with electoral speech and, and political speech. And, you know, one of the, one of the wonders of the First Amendment is that uh, the court has acknowledged that it protects all expression because all of life is filled with talk and, and communication about all of the ways in which people live, including sex. And that is why the First Amendment doesn't distinguish between which ideas are better than others or which ones rise to cer a certain level of that they're, they're going to be protected. Uh, it is an open field to allow people to form their ideas about how they want to live. And politics is just a game we play here in D.C. It, it seems like it's also, and, and get ready for this, I'm going to say something good about Trump and Obama. But I don't know if that's happened at Cato before. The... Um, President Trump's done a good thing in the sense that he's got a lot of people interested in uh, politics. But more than that, he got them motivated and he got them to believe that there could be, uh, my impression is, a lot of people who thought this is just uh, hopeless and all of that sort of thing, he got them to believe in it. Now, he got them to believe in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. So the other side, in, in other words, in being motivated and mobilized into politics, you start as an advocate and then you meet with others and you f argue with others and, you, and so on, and you have to take them seriously and there's a development of a kind of civic capability there. And so President Trump got that going. What I'd, I think I would like to see is something like where the President Obama did when people were talking about safe spaces and college students being protected from ideas. It'd be great to see President Trump say something like that, something that was really supportive of the culture of the First Amendment. And after all, this is a guy that gives as good as he gets, and he could put it in that context and all that stuff. But it would like to something positive could really follow up on his initial mobilization of these people who uh, could become better citizens under the First Amendment. And, and yet his impulse in hearing about the situation in Berkeley was to send out a tweet saying, deny federal funds. Uh, you, you know, while I appreciate the fact that he was saying good things about freedom of expression and that universities shouldn't cancel speeches because uh, there is uh, discomfort with the message, uh, the notion that the way to deal with those situations is through federal coercion uh, strikes me as just a little bit odd. Um, Nonetheless, um, it gets back to 
view, how do you view contrary ideas? And Fleming, you were talking about this, saying that uh, the problem is everyone is, has their own biases reinforced. And you see that with the reactions on campus where you see contrary ideas as being dangerous or unwelcome, and therefore you have a hostile reaction to it. And we should have, particularly in the university setting, but I think throughout society, just a more welcoming uh, attitude toward ideas that you hate, you know, so that you can engage in that robust give and take. Um, and we're not seeing that now. With the polarization, what we're seeing is shouting matches. Let, let, let me just follow up on that very briefly. One of the greatest threats, it seems to me, to free speech comes from universities, and particularly universities, nearly all of whom have their offices of, you know, diversity, this, that, and the other, and are very quick to try to suppress people who have conservative views about anything. I don't have a particular problem about an administration that tries to defend academic freedom. I remember what the battle lines were like 50-odd years back when there were loyalty oaths. And at that point, it was places like the New York Times that properly came out in favor of free speech. And people like William F. Buckley, who wrongly, I thought, supported loyalty oaths. I'd like to see the defense of academic freedom coming from the Department of Education, and I'd like to see the New York Times oppose that. Well, I, I agree with you there, and, and you know, just, we, we haven't met before, but I spend about half of my time litigating First Amendment cases on college campuses, and I, I can tell you that it is, what, what would you call it, a vast bipartisan conspiracy to restrict speech, regardless of whether it's conservative or liberal, and my cases have, have involved students on, across the political spectrum. Uh, what you have is a, a bureaucracy that increasingly thinks that students can't think for themselves and that they have an obligation to protect them from anything that might upset them. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a very unfortunate trend, and fortunately our constitutional protections are strong in that area. Lots of questions. The woman on the aisle about four or five in seemed, was first, showing intense interest, which leads to good questions. Uh -huh. My name is Maddie Pavic, and I'm a student at American University, um, where there has been some flag burning last semester and considerable um, protest. And I'm also from Minnesota, where there's currently bills um, being presented to restrict um, forms of protest. And I think that's um, a freedom of expression that hasn't really been touched upon in this panel. And I um, wanted to get your opinion um, and perspective on that. On, on what? On flag burning? Okay. Let me say something about flag burning since you mentioned it. I think it, it's not improper for a country to promote a sense of nationalism. And I recognize that nationalism in other countries can be extremely dangerous. But I think there's something benign necessarily about American nationalism. And to understand that, you have to understand what it is which makes people American. It's not race, it's not religion, rather it's allegiance to some fundamental documents as espoused in the Declaration and the Constitution and the First Amendment and some speeches by Abraham Lincoln, and that's what makes you an American. And that's what makes a refugee an American once he comes here and comes here because he believes in, in those kinds of principles. And part of that involves the supremacy of those principles 
over the symbols like the flags. So it is glorious for the court to protect flag burners in defense of the more fundamental principles of that which makes one an American. So I, I, I salute that, the flag burning case. And of course, you know, if you want flag burning, the best thing you can do is prescribe it. Boy, you'll, that's when you'll see it, right? That's right. I mean, yeah. the wave of flag burning that took place after the Supreme Court um, upheld the First Amendment right to protest using the American flag was unprecedented. They don't burn flags elsewhere. No, and, 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 and if Koran burning is protected by the First Amendment, uh, flag burning should be as well. Uh, in, in, in Denmark, where I come from, flag, flag burning of flags of other countries is a criminal offense, while it's not a, a criminal offense to burn the Danish flag. And, sorry, and, and so there were, in fact, nationalist parties who, uh, when, when, the, when the Danish flag was being burned during the Khartoum crisis, also wanted to turn it into a criminal offense in Denmark. Oh, actually, I just want to revise what I said earlier. The wave of flag burnings came in the wake of Congress trying to correct the Supreme Court that uh, um, when um, it was going to be made a crime, then it became very attractive to do. The, to go back just before we go to the next question, both presidential candidates presumably mm -hmm. uh, supported uh, criminalizing flag yeah. burning last time. The gentleman right in the middle. What, what, please wait for the microphone. Bill Bushka, DoAskDoTell.com. Let me throw a, go in a diff slightly different direction. I'm talking uh, to the mic. Yeah, yeah can you hear it? Louder. Okay. Um, I think that there's, a, there's a law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which helps um, protect service providers from downstream liability. This, I think, is this likely to come under assault during the Trump administration? Um, over issues, um, the misuse of the internet, the cyberbullying, the terrorist propaganda, um, child pornography, um, sex trafficking, the Backpage case. Do you think that, I think that could be a serious threat to the whole system of user-generated content, although in Europe, we don't, they don't have as strong protection of downstream liability as we do in the U.S. I, I thought that might get mentioned this morning. No one's mentioned it. And by the way, I don't have a problem with anything Milo says. I'm Milo Yiannopoulos. I'm a little surprised. I've never just wanted to throw that out. He hasn't been mentioned this morning, but I wanted to throw that out too. He doesn't have any problem with Milo's. Um, I haven't heard anyone from the Trump administration talk about Section 230 uh, specifically. Um, first, it, for the president to say something about it, someone would have to explain to him what it is. But. Uh, <laughs> And I, I don't think he would think it really affects him. Uh, I think there is constant um, pressure on Section 230 since it says that if you are an Internet platform and you host the speech of a third party, you're not going to be held liable for it. It was almost an accidental protection that, that Congress adopted when it was really setting out to regulate the Internet as if it was broadcast television. But anyway, that provision remained, and it has been a, an important driver of Internet freedom. Uh, because otherwise, if you're the platform and you're going to be liable for speech that somebody posts, uh, then you're going to have to be responsible for millions and millions of postings if you're Facebook or, or YouTube uh, or Backpage.com. Uh, and um, 
you know, under those circumstances, nobody's going to take the risk of, of posting anything. Now, the fact is, uh, the internet is wide open. There's a lot of speech that people object to. And as a consequence, there is a constant pressure to revise Section 230. Um, you'll hear talk about that in, in Congress. As I say, I haven't heard the White House talk about it. Uh, but I think Section 230 is secure. And by the way, Section 230 is backed by First Amendment protections so that even if it didn't exist, I think the First Amendment principles that are enshrined in Section 230 uh, would also be enforced by the courts. I would just say on the end of it is uh, speaking on behalf of my colleagues at the Cato Institute, I suspect, in fact, I'm sure that everyone that works with me does not, in fact, agree with Milo and the things he says. At the same time, I I'm certain that my, all of my colleagues believe he had the right to say all of it. And the government, or to put it another way, the government had no power, including someone at Berkeley. Which, by the way, the Berkeley administration behaved seemingly pretty well, from what we can tell. Uh, so there's a two different things. Uh, it's always important. Government doesn't always have to be, you, to limit government, you don't have to be favoring what is said. That's crucial, I think. Now, uh, gentlemen on the aisle here, I'm trying to go over, get everyone. Uh, thank you, Paul Cadero from the University of Toronto. I'm, I'd be interested in the panel's thoughts on how Donald Trump uses Twitter. And I'm, you know, if you're Megyn Kelly, or Twitter and his public pronouncements, if you're <clears throat> Megyn Kelly, you can look after yourself. If you're Boeing, you can look after yourself. If you're a journalist from a small newspaper or you're just a private citizen who gets attacked on Twitter, three in the morning, four in the morning, six in the evening, you maybe don't have the resources to protect yourself against death, death threats or bad tele or anonymous telephone calls or attacks by other of Mr. Trump's um, followers, 20 million, I guess. I'm so I'm wondering whether that has an impact on free speech in the sense that private individuals may be reluctant to say what they think, particularly on social media, because you don't know who's going to attack you. Maybe not the president, but the tone that goes to social media, the president's not the first person to do this, but there's a, a lack of civility that the president of the United States, by his own action, seems to endorse, condone, and indeed participate in. I, I, I agree. Well, <clears throat> well, let me say something for Trump. Right? Actually, what I'll say is something about the American Constitution. Mm -hmm. What it lacks is that which Madison described as filtration. In other words, a system in which only the best would rise to the top. And he thought this would happen when you had a president appointed by Congress. Uh, Madison's ideas about the Constitution were, in fact, adopted, right? He is the father of the Constitution except it's the Canadian Constitution I'm talking about. His filtration system is a system of parliamentary government. And so here you have the paradox that you have presidents who aren't filtered that way, who don't have the experience of standing up before the opposition bench for years and years and, and honing your skill, right? You don't have that kind of filtration. But on the other hand, 
you have made the president the head of state as well as the head of government, and therefore, he is someone who you are trained to revere. Now, look, I think <coughs> politicians, nearly all of them, are about the lowest kind of worm God ever suffered to crawl upon the face of the earth. But in your constitution, speaking as a foreigner for the moment, in your constitution, somehow you've got to revere these guys, and if there is a tragedy, it requires a presidential healing speech uh, over which Peggy Noonan will drop a few tears. And if there is something glorious that requires a presidential medal, I think it should be done by Prince Charles. Well, we, we have a system here, too. Uh, and, and we use reality television to filter our candidates. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they don't give up their Twitter accounts once they get elected, which is the problem I think you were talking about. Uh, it is a problem, but I don't think I'd connect it necessarily to social media. If you had a, a new president-elect who would have a nightly news conference and single out individuals and say, I hate that person, or that person is a loser, uh, then I think you would have the same problem. Uh, the fact is, uh, the president has used his Twitter account to single out companies, individuals he doesn't like, and there have been really unfortunate consequences. I actually heard a story on my commute. I have a long train commute uh, to work every day. And uh, I was talking to a friend who said he had an acquaintance who could now retire. And he was serious. I don't know if this is true, but he was serious, saying that he had this person that he knew who developed a system of, of following uh, Trump's tweets and making trades in the market based on yeah. those tweets so that he could tell if a stock was going to go up or down uh, depending on what the, the, the tweets were. And in six months, uh, the guy is going to retire. Now, I, again, I have no idea if this is true, but I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, um, I will agree with Bob. I don't think it has anything to do with a specific media. Uh, and and it, it is a general challenge, but I think it's, I mean, we are still living in a liberal democracy and institutions do protect our right to speak out. So this is a question of, uh, of uh, individuals making decisions to speak out. I mean, it's not an anarchy. Uh, it's not a jungle. Uh, you can speak out. Uh, yes, it may need, uh, take some, some courage, but I, without doing any literal comparisons, it's the same with, uh, with, with terrorism. I mean, the, the way you fight terrorism by not, is not by not letting you being terrorized. Uh, by doing that, you reduce uh, a terrorist act to simple uh, criminality uh, and not you, you to take out the political uh, uh, content of it. Uh, so, so if people just sit, uh, sit back and, and, and feel intimidated, do not speak out, of course it will have consequences. But uh, so it's up to, it's up to everybody to, uh, to, be, to make up their mind what they think about it and, and react. So it follows from that. We've all done our bit to fight terrorism today because we've all sit, sat in a room for an hour and a half now with Fleming Rose. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank each of you for coming today. I hope you enjoyed this. I thought it was a very good discussion. You can continue the discussion upstairs uh, during our lunch, which uh, you go to the end, go up uh, the stairs to the second level to the George Yeager Conference Center. Uh, the restrooms are on the second floor on your uh, look for the yellow wall when you're there. And I want to thank our guests, Fleming, uh, Bob, and Frank. <laughs>